0: We come to the close of this 1st John sermon series. Uh, I could see so much sadness as soon as I said that. It has been a rich blessing. I told you this book is simple but surgical. We're coming right to the conclusion. Tap on your phones. If you have your Bibles, even better. It will also be projected overhead. Let's look at 1st John chapter 5, verses 13 to 15, and then verses 18 to 21. Okay, 13 to 15, 18 to 21, I'll read this for us. This is God's word. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. John 1, verses 18 to 21. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God. He is the true God and eternal life. Verse 20, one, the closing. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Okay, this is God's word for us today. Thanks be to God. So Apostle John wrote this little letter. And if you've paid any attention so far, you know that it's full, full of love. Uh, he addresses us like little children so many times. It's, it's with a father's heart for his children. That's been one of the grand themes. And what Apostle John is, is he's a vehicle. He reflects God the Father's own heart for his own children. Today, we're just going to close and look at five things that God wants for his children. Five things first. God wants his children to enjoy blessed assurance. God wants that. God wants his children to be confident in that. Uh, This has been the author's intent from chapter 1, verse 4, in our first message. I write these things to you so that your joy might be made complete. So if anyone is wanting to be joyful, anyone wants their joy to be increasing, anyone wants even find joy to begin with, this is the book for you. And this intent of the author now comes to the conclusion here in telling us how. John wrote these things so that you and I could experience and feel the completion of joy. Here's how you get it in knowing certain things and having blessed assurance. Blessed assurance. Uh, So far, this book, I think, is ideal in offering tests or conditions through which you can figure out whether you are a Christian or a child of God or not. I can't think of many of the books that may filter through that. So if you have questions about this or struggle through it, please go back to this book. We're open to all questions. No pastor here does not welcome any interest or inquiry about your spiritual story or condition or questions or problems. We love that. But so far, this book has offered critical tests. If you are a child of God, synonymous with Christian, is that number one, you'll be obeying, obeying his commands. Second, you'll be loving, loving one another. John is the book that says, you cannot say that you love God, you cannot say that you love Jesus, but you are separated, uninvolved with, hating on, withdrawing from, and not being serving in a local church. You cannot say that you love God, but you're not loving one another. The signs, the marks of children of God is that they have family likeness. So you obey You are loving, and of course, third, you're overcoming sin, or you're overcoming the love of this world, and you're overcoming the evil one who controls this present world. Now, when we get to this passage, it's a very different kind of purpose. So far, John has offered tests to see if you are a child of God or not. Here in our passage, he goes out and says it. You actually could be a child. You can be a Christian, but you may not be sure of it. You may not be resting in it. You may not be enjoying it. You don't experience complete joy. I mean, look at verse 13. We just read it together. How he says, you already believe in the name of the Son of God. But I write this, why? You already believe that you may know. That you may know of these things. Be certain of it. Be secure. Blessed assurance. You know, the larger catechism, which is a helpful tool. I know it's man-made, but it's based on the Holy Scriptures. And in questions 80 and 81, it actually tells us how you can gain or enjoy blessed assurance and infallible assurance of your salvation. Quote, those who endeavor to walk in all good conscience. End quote. And that is totally biblical. What John is saying, what the larger catechism is instructing us is that assurance of your salvation, the security that you're a child of God comes from when you walk the walk, you walk the talk. It is conditional. Yeah, you heard me right. This part is conditional. It's conditional to how closely you walk with God, your father and Jesus, your older brother, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Question 81 goes on and describes, everyone's faith can be weak or strong, often assailed and weakened through manifold distempers, sins, temptations, and desertions. Yet children of God are never left. They are never left without such a presence and support of the Spirit of God as keeps them from sinking into utter despair. God the Father wants you to know, be assured if you are His child. I had the opportunity to get reacquainted, reunited with an old dear friend and pastor. He became a naval chaplain. And he was telling me these stories that riveted me. He actually went to Afghanistan where they're instructed to take out a couple streets. This is full-on war in Afghanistan. And he told me how every brave, young, fit young man would walk into his office and they would literally physically shake. They could barely speak. They trembled. When bullets are flying, the saying is true, there are no atheists in a foxhole. Chaplain Lewis told me, there's no one that I met when you feel like you're on the verge of death and your body is shaken all the way through that you don't have an instinct to cry out for some kind of salvation or help. And I asked Lewis, what do you say? What do you tell these brave young men who've lost all their courage? He says, Harold, what else do I say? I have to point them to Christ. (laughs) I mean, go figure, right? I'm a pastor at Christ Central, and he had to give me back the answer (laughs) that I should have known. I got to point them to Christ. And here's what he means by that. My friends, you know that it's not about the size or strength of your faith. It's not about the size and strength of how brave you are. It's not about the size and strength of how how hard and how long you've believed. No, no, no. You need to look at the size and strength of your Savior. And only in Him, as you cling to Him, as you cling to Christ, you look out and above and beyond yourself, there can be found an unassailable power, assurance, even in the face of disease and death. God wants you to know these things. I mean, is there any parent in this room who wants your children to not know? To not be sure? To not be certain and steady and secure in a parent's love? Oh, how much more with God? God. But it comes as you walk the walk, walk the talk, walk closely to him. This is what God wants. Here's the second thing that God wants for His children. Remarkable. God wants to spend eternity with you. He wants to spend forever with you. He wants to be with you and me for forever, like forever and ever. Uh, If you like anybody, you love anybody, you just can't believe how fast time flies when you're spending time with that person. I look up to so many people, not just little, but in so many different ways at our church and our session and families here. and uh, It's getting closer, but man, I I look up to because I just want to prepare myself in becoming an empty nester. Parents who watch their kids go goodbye. They go off to school or to work or travel or something like that. I kind of dread the day, but I'm kind of watching you because I want to learn from you and prepare me. I mean, I don't know any parent who doesn't love their kids so much at certain ages where you said, I just want this to just go on forever. I never want this to stop. This is how God feels, and this is what God wants with his children. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson, marvelous theologian, author, teacher, former pastor, Uh, he was listening to the British Broadcasting Company, I think that's what it stands for, the BBC, and the question was being posed, what will heaven be like? What will heaven be like? And Sinclair recounted how he heard answers of, I can't wait to see the angels fly, Some other people said, I can't wait till I get to fly because I have been suffering and disabled in this present life. I can't wait to be fully healthy. Other people, of course, said, I can't wait for my long-lost loved ones to be reunited and embrace them. Other people said, no more struggle. No more work. No more monotony and grind. No more tears. Ah, but Sinclair Furn it out pointed out, noticeably missing was the answer to the question, what will heaven be like? Noticeably missing was that God will be there. That God will be there. Now you see, my friends, God the Father wants to spend eternity with his children and real children want the same. God the Father wants forever to be with you, and real children actually long for and can't wait for the same. You know, the same author wrote a book called Revelation because God revealed things to him, and he described heaven in this way. There's going to be no sun or moon. I can't wait. There's going to be no sun or moon. Do you know why? Because God's going to light it up. His very presence. His glory. Glory means the visible splendor, majesty, and beauty of God. Oh, it'll outshine and outblaze the sun. And a million planets put together. That's going to be our sight. No sun or moon because the glory of God will shine. That's what we're going to see. How will it sound? What will heaven be like? What is it going to sound like? John tells us there's going to be a chorus, thousands upon thousands of people singing praise and honor and glory to a lamb who was slain, Jesus Christ. That's referring to Jesus Christ. Now, here's my point, my friends. If God being there, blazing in all of his glory... And you're going to be surrounded by all these people singing in worship to Jesus who was slain for our sins. If that's not heaven to you right now, it's not going to be heaven to you then. If that's not interesting and enjoyable to you right now, if that doesn't get your juices flowing in any way, shape, or form now, I wouldn't know why God would want you to be in heaven like that would be hell for you. Freddie Mercury, wow, what a voice. I don't know if you saw the movie, the lead singer of Queen, he was once quoted as saying, Oh, I was not made for heaven. No, I don't want to go to heaven. Hell is much better. Think of all the interesting people you're going to meet down there. Is heaven heaven because God will be there? Real children want forever with him. Well, how do you get this eternal life that John has been talking about? How do you know that God wants to spend eternity with you? He says it. Those who believe in the name of the Son of God, those who believe in the name of Jesus, right? There is no other way. Jesus being true God and true man, which we just recited through the Heidelberg Catechism, he had to give up his entire life. He had to be sacrificed. He had to die. He had to... Pour out all of his blood so that you and I can be adopted. Welcome to the family of God. And when you believe, when you rest, when you throw your life upon Jesus Christ, call out upon his name, you receive eternal life. Verse 20, it says, true, 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 three times. Jesus is the true God, which means, why would John say Jesus is the true God? That means there's false gods. That means there's false religions. That means there's false spirits. That means there's wrong ways. That means there's wrong spiritualities. That means there's wrong instincts. That means there's a lot of devotion and things you could do for the rest of your life that are just flat out false and wrong. John says, Jesus is the true God. True God leads to eternal life. False gods lead to eternal death. There's no other way around that. God wants, if you are his child, that you may know. Blessed assurance. And God wants to spend forever with you. Here's third. God wants to hear from you anytime, anywhere, about anything. God wants to hear from you anytime, anywhere, about anything. Taylor Elizabeth, give me a text randomly during school hour or early afternoon, or they give me a phone call. They never do that. They just text. But anyhow, I love it. They message me on Instagram once in a while. Love it. I immediately respond, pick up. And of course, in the worst case scenario, I've got to pick up. I've got to respond in case it's an emergency. They have 24-7 access to me. As long as my phone is near me, I'm going to respond to that right away. My wife, Sonny, sometimes she'll call and text and, Yeah, I better respond in order to avoid a potential emergency. (laughs) You guys hear this story these days that it's overcrowded on the way to Mount Everest in Nepal? The highest place on planet Earth. And you got amateurs to mediocre climbers just paying a lot of money because they want to experience life. And it's putting all these Sherpas at risk. In an HBO documentary said from like 2013 to 2018, 32 Sherpas died. Those are those centuries kind of trained. It's kind of driven into them to be super strong, breathe at high altitudes. They like carry up cooking utensils and dining tables for like Western foreigners who want to climb to the top. 32 died out of several hundred. That makes it, according to this documentary, the most dangerous job in the world per capita. Right now, We have people in this, it's called the death zone, death zone. So I I do wonder why, why anyone wants to do this. People are trapped and the oxygen is so thin you can't breathe. And the reports are people are stepping over freshly deceased bodies to still get to the top. Now, Here's my point in bringing that illustration up with you. If God rarely hears from you, listen close. You can go to church, but listen. If, if God rarely ever hears from you, or God never hears from you about anything from anywhere at any time, like he never hears from you, spiritually speaking, you are in, you might be dead. Because praying shows that you're breathing. Breathing. Praying shows that you have life with and from God. Praying is a sign that you have spiritual oxygen. Any parent-child relationship, any, any child. Have you ever seen a child that never goes and cries and needs the parent? There is constancy there, isn't it? It's continual, isn't it? The child is totally reliant. And then when they talk to the parent, notice how children begin to talk. If you think prayer is difficult, it's foreign, it's intimidating. In public it is, but you can learn it in private. No one's listening to you except God. Just take it from children. How do children begin to learn to talk with their parent? Do they have to go to seminary to do that first? It's not formal or stiff, is it? They just mumble. They just kind of figure out words. It's very familiar. And children have constant access to their parent. Oh, my friend, but you and I just don't know how much God the Father wants to hear from his children anytime, anywhere, about anything. Praying is continual communication. And Apostle John says, hear what? Communication and... Confidence. Confidence. There is such a thing as godly, spiritual poise and posture and confidence. That's good. Confident of what? Here's what you can be confident about. Whenever you begin to talk to God, thank God he has no phone in his hands. Whenever you talk to God about anything, anytime, anywhere... God does not have more important work to do. God is not tired. God is not distracted. God didn't have a bad day that day so that he tells you, come back to me later. And we enjoyed so much a praise and prayer night which we have from time to time and our Fulton campus pastor led that and he offered a wonderful devotion on prayer in which he said from the scriptures every time you pray God not only hears it but he's going to give you one of three answers every time yes no or wait every time you can be confident of that You can be confident not only God hears you, but he's actually giving you answers to your prayer almost as soon as you even send them. They come so fast sometimes, specifically in my life, I get amazed. I have no other explanation but God. So often with the life of this church. But he always not only hears you, he will answer yes, no, or wait. Yes, if it's according to his will. No, if it's totally against his will and it will ruin you. Or wait, it's just not the right time. And it might not be the right time because you're not ready to receive it. You see, prayer is not informing God of something new. Praying is not persuading and getting God to do what I want him to do. Oh, but so often I want that. And I want that for you, for some of you. I pray that God would do what we really desperately are begging him to do. No, but ultimately prayer is God revealing his own will. And if God is infinitely good, infinitely loving, and infinitely wise. Stay with me here. If God is infinitely good, loving, and wise, then I don't know why we would ever want to change his will. Like ever no matter how it looks and feels at the present moment. God in prayer is showing us what his will is for us, and then he's changing and strengthening you and me according to his. God always wants to hear from you, and he will always answer you every time. And you'll always have a yes, you'll always have a yes. If you get changed and strengthened to pray according to his will. Jesus Christ, the perfect, perfect own son of God. The only begotten son of God prayed. Father, please. Please. I don't want to die. I don't want to suffer. Take this cup from me. Is there any other way out? God came back with a no. No. But when God came back with the no, listen, my friends, don't bypass this part. When God came back with the no, God strengthened and changed in Jesus in a sense to go through and accomplish the Father's will. As brutal as it was. God wants to hear from you. He wants to hear from you. And he answers it every time. Well, this makes me think, then just tracing back, Um, do you know how many unanswered and rejected prayers I should be thankful for? (laughs) Do you know how many unanswered prayers I should rejoice over? Do you know how many seasons and times I was so impatient and said, God, why can't you just give me that right now? That in the waiting and in the next season, when God did something different or gave me exactly what I had asked for 10 years, that I turn around with my limited, foolish mind and start to figure out, hmm, now that was much better. This is what God wants for his children. He wants you to have busted assurance. He wants to spend eternity with you. Third, he wants to hear from you all the time. Here's fourth. God wants to change you. Oh, he does, because he loves you. He wants to change you for good and for his glory. Uh, Verse 18 describes those who are born of God. Verse 19 and 21 says people who are from God are the children of God. And then verse 20, it says those who have eternal life. It may sound like three different descriptions of three different groups. They're not. It's all the same group. All different descriptors for Christian people are the children of God. And all of these verses are comprehensive and complementary. It's sweeping in their images. You need all three. They're all interlocked. In other words, all three areas of your life need to be changing or you're not Christian. Let me say that again. You shouldn't just be changing in one or two or three aspects all are interlocking, all are vital because when God comes into anyone's life, His change is total and sweeping too. What does He change? Oh, let's work backwards. In verse 20, verse 20, here's what we read. If we can get the next slide, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding. See, He gives you a new mind. He changes your mind's Please understand here, when you read Understanding, you think, you may think, oh, God gives me new information. God gives me new doctrines. That's what all religious people think. Religious people can extend and add to their knowledge of things. Religious people can memorize Bible verses. Religious people can quote catechisms and creeds. Religious people can have mental ascent and understanding and have a photographic memory. When it says here that God gives you understanding to his own children, it's not just new information. Here's what it means. It's a whole new experience. It's a whole new spiritual sense of the mind. I don't know a better way to illustrate this than, again, that older movie. I know I always date myself with movie illustration, right? But Robin Williams... Matt Damon, Goodwill Hunting, and the older counselor is telling Matt Damon, I'm sure you've read about the Sistine Chapel. I'm sure you can describe what paintings are there, when he painted, what the colors are. I'm sure you could read it from a book, but have you ever gone to the Sistine Chapel? Religious people can read about the Sistine Chapel. Born again, children of God, for real, actually went there. You experienced it. So I went. I went a couple summers ago with my family. It's one of my little bucket list items. And I went in there and I was mesmerized by the overly expressive, colorful paintings of young Michelangelo all across the ceiling, old ancient prophets. And I thought they were pretty darn accurate. The expressions upon the Old Testament prophetic faces according to their personalities and what they wrote, I thought I was just mesmerized how biblically literate they were, not just how artistic they were. And I was looking at it for about 10, 15 minutes. My wife and my girls were sitting on the bench, it was really crowded. I was looking at it, definitely was savoring and smelling and enjoying it, only to be interrupted, Dad, when are we leaving? <laughs> so we left. You know, religious people are always like, yeah, I, wow, I really heard about that concert. I heard that person sings really well. But then people who actually went to the concert, they're like, yeah. She sure does sing well. New mind. Not information, my friends. It's an actual experience and sense. He gives you a new heart. He changes everything. He gives you a new heart. We know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That talks about my heart's been captured. It's been stolen somehow. Now it belongs to another. Another my deepest drives and affections belongs to someone else. A Christian is a person who's had a total change of heart or identity. Christian children can know you are of infinite worth and value and dignity and glory because God wants to spend eternity with you at the cost of his own son. New mind, new heart, new will. New will, verse 18. Verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Oh, I remember the days in undergrad. I lost count of how many times I had to read 1 John because one of its great purposes is to show whether or not you're a child of God or not. I had a very, very tender, sensitive conscience then. Oh, it's not as sensitive now for Sure. But when I read this, it bothered me so much. I just had to keep reading the book over and over and over. I just couldn't make sense of it. Because to me, it sounded like, oh, well, if you're a Christian born of God, you should just stop sinning altogether. It all stops. It all stops. But look at you, Harold. There's no way you're stopping. There's still a lot of sinning going on. Mm. There's no way John could mean, though, here. That a child of God completely stops sinning? That's impossible because in chapter 1, verse 8, the same author wrote, if you say you do not have sin, the truth is not in you. You're deceiving yourselves. So you got to reconcile. How does the same author say in the beginning you do have sin? you got to be honest and self-aware and confess them all, which is what we do at every Sunday worship service. And then turn around here in chapter 5, verse 18, it says, oh, well, we do not keep on sinning. Well, that's a present progressive verb. That's a present progressive verb. So here's what it means. Born again, children of God, those who have eternal life, can no longer sin in the same way that they used to. And it's progressive. It's progressive. I'll put it this way. Non-believing friends, I got a few left now. A few. But that's a tragedy in my life, right? Because as a pastor, I have such few non-believing friends left. But non-believers, the last time I checked, as long as it's legal, it's fine. <laughs> like their morality is just legal or not, good. And then there's certain things that the Bible blatantly says is against the will of God, and they just do it and do it, and they have no disturbance, no remorse, no conscience. They indulge it and enjoy it. They love it. They love it while they're sinning. They love their life apart from God. No, not with Christians. This is, this is not possible. Christian people, if you know that that is sinful, yeah, you can sin. You may continue to sin, but you don't love it. How can you? There's a new fight against it. There's a deep nausea about it. There's a hatred of it. There's a struggle against it. There's an agonizing against it, and there's a repenting of it. You know, repenting is that you want to stop, and you don't know how to stop. Therefore, you come to Jesus Christ, as Savior, to give you grace and blessing to move on. Repenting is you don't want to do this. Your whole will has been changed. You don't like this at all. But somehow you fell into it again and again and again and again. But you always get back up in repentance. And you don't stop wanting to stop sinning. There's a whole new attitude to it. Also, take heart, my friends, this morning. Is there an agony? Is there a fight? Are there tears? Are there sweat? Is there frustration? Is there what you might call war going on in your soul against sin? If there is, assuredly you're a child of God because you're progressing. Oh, I've been here, what, 10, 12 years? Sometimes it feels long, but in the grand scheme of things, way short span of time. In 12, 10 years, at Christ Central, I cannot recount to you how many lives I've seen changed. Hopefully, my family and mine too. I cannot tell you how people who used to be so like maybe obtuse and not self-aware become that much more considerate and not rude and respectful and considerate. It's amazing. People who became more patient. People who now reach out to people that they would normally never ever, ever reach out to. People being delivered from over anger, hyper anger, constant anger, just reacting emotion in anger reconciling marriages that have been so damaged and hurt that I thought it can't it can't return progressing progressing this is how God changes us and then apostle John goes on to say but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him I'll tell you ultimately how you progress it's because you're protected Oh yes, the evil one can assail you, attack you, tempt you, frighten you, oppress you, set up roadblocks, come against you. But this verse tells me, but he can't touch you. The evil one cannot touch a child of God. Do you know how marked and protected you are by love? Remember in Harry Potter? Harry Potter can't be touched. Mother sacrificial love. You think, oh, how silly. No, she got that from the gospel. You are marked with the blood and the sign of Jesus Christ. The evil one cannot even directly touch you. Remember God's instructions to Job, which is mystery beyond mystery? Job, you can do basically pretty much, but you can never touch him directly. That's right. The evil one cannot touch you directly. Progressing and protected. This is what God wants for his children. To change you in every aspect. Last one. God wants to keep yourselves, wants you, (laughs) you, to keep yourselves from idols. Uh, Let's be honest here. Um, That's a letdown. What kind of abrupt, awkward conclusion is that? Read the other letters. Grace, peace, and love to you. Other letters say, I can't wait to see you. Other letters say, Blessed are those who wait for the second appearing or the coming of Jesus Christ. Here, keep yourselves from idols. (sighs) Little children. All right, this is how tender and sobering this father is. He knows because so often, spiritually speaking, we're like such little kids. He has to close with the summary statement, maybe the most important thing. And in essence, he's saying this. Everything I told you to know, everything I told you to enjoy, all the blessings that could come your way, all the assurances that you should experience, all of it can be ruined overnight. You'll lose it all. You can't have anything that I just wrote until you do this last verse. I think he's dead on right. Little children have to learn to grow up to be wise, make right decisions and take responsibility. Here is the last summary verse, and without this, all of first John can be lost. So at a pastor's gathering in Southeast India, there's an American visiting pastor there, went through all the villages. And he saw every form, every configuration of idols. He saw elaborate foreign ceremonies. He saw even bloodletting sacrifices being made. Well, at the pastor's conference, the American pastor went up to an Indian pastor's wife and asked her, hey, have you ever been to America? And she said, yes, I have. But I'll never go back because I cannot stomach the idolatry in America. And of course, the American pastor was looking around like, he's just perplexed and stunned. He's like, what? You're saying we have so many idols in America? Here's what she went on to explain. Our shrines are small. Yours are big. They're called stadiums. You put on costumes and cheer. And if your gods are winning, there's eating, drinking, and celebrating. If your gods lose, you're so disappointed and devastated that you pray to them to resurrect. Your movie theaters are palaces for gods and goddesses up on that big screen. And in our culture, if you go into the average home, you might find an altar, a small altar, in the living room with a candle. In your homes, your altars are much bigger and they're plugged in. Oh man, we're so good. I'm so good. I'm pointing out idols in other people's cultures in other people's lives but mine. And if you as Asian American people go overseas and you're on a mission trip and you look around and you might wonder to yourself, you're too polite to say it out loud, but you wonder to yourself, how do you people live like this? Did you know that foreign missionaries and probably Apostle John himself for you to show up in our lives, he'd look around and he'd say, how do you people live like this? Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Idols cannot take away your eternal life. They cannot undo your beloved status as a child of God. They cannot, you cannot lose your salvation. Oh, but they can devastate. They can take all your joy. All your joys even if you're a child of God. This is Apostle John's fatherly love for his children. More importantly, it's a reflection of God, the Father's own love for his children. Let's pray, let's pray. As we come to the close of First John this morning, I just want to give you some moments to reflect and to respond in prayer. God's word is always cleansing. God's word never returns void or empty. God's word convicts and also comforts and saves. I trust that God has spoken into your lives. Would you pray that back? Because God wants to hear from you. And he will answer every request. Pray with me as we close in first John. Let's pray.